Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen. tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump Podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 163rd episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's episode, we are featuring a location that's at the southernmost point of the United States of America down there in Key West, Florida, and that is Captain Tony's Saloon. This location has a lot of interesting history to go with it. Most people would probably walk outside of it and say, oh, that looks like a ramshackle kind of bar. But it's actually been there for over a hundred years and had all kinds of things going on in this location. And some of the things that are going on there now entail some haunting. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you. And this location was suggested to us by Mary Ann Barkham. And we also have on this episode the fifth installment of the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition. Want to remind you guys that we still have the design contest going on. And then Denise, how about that ambassador program? Yes, so the ambassador program, so far we've had quite a few people interested. This is just people who want to represent their area for History Ghost Bump. You wouldn't have a huge time commitment. We would want you to do some local ghost tours so that if people call and ask us, you know, we're going to Blah Blah City, what ghost tour do you recommend? We would be able to refer them to you as a contact. And so if you are interested in being the point person and kind of the contact person for your area for History Goes Bump, just send your interest and a short bio to historygoesbump at gmail.com. I do ask that you email and not put it on Facebook or in the Spooktacular crew. I have very little time during the day to check those things and they get lost. And so an email, if Diane sees it, she's putting it in my folder. And if I see it, then it will be there so that we make sure that we don't miss anybody. We have a bunch more people to welcome to the Spooktacular crew. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Glenna. Hey, Glenna. Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Marlene. Hey, Marlene. Hope we said that right. I think her name is French. We have John number one. Hello, John number one. And John number two. And John number two. Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Tiff. Hey, Tiff. Amber. Hi, Amber. Holly. Hello, Holly. Rizalyn. Hi, Rizalyn. Luis. Hey, Luis. Boyd. Hello, Boyd. Tony. Hey, Tony. Teresa Rose. Hey, Teresa Rose. Dion. Hi, Dion. Corey. Hello, Corey. And Ezruik. And hello, Ezruik. Denise, are you ready to go down to one of our favorite places? We absolutely love the Florida Keys. We're not as crazy about Key West, but it's still a pretty fun place to visit. Yes, and it's funny that we love the Florida Keys so much, and we've been there zero times since we actually moved to Florida. <laughs> but we do have future plans. But yes, I'm definitely ready to go now.
History Goes Bump is entirely listener-supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. A section of the Autobahn in Germany between Bremen and Bremerhaven was opened in 1929, and in its first year of operation, 100 cars crashed. That would be weird enough all on its own, but what makes this even more bizarre is that all the crashes happened in the same place, near kilometer marker 239. On September 7, 1930, nine separate accidents occurred. All of the cars were totaled. Authorities were puzzled because the patch of road was not particularly hazardous. There was no tight turn. The road was straight and flat. Then they started comparing stories of accident survivors. Many claimed feeling a sensation as though a strange force had taken over the steering wheel and thrown the car off the road. A local water diviner named Carl Weirs heard about the issue and went to the police offering his services. He walked with a steel divining rod around the marker. He was looking for an underground stream causing some kind of magnetic force. While he was walking, the rod was ripped from his grasp and his body was spun around 360 degrees. Weirs suggested that a box of copper be buried next to the marker. The accidents stopped. They tested the theory by digging up the box, and three cars immediately crashed. They buried the box again and sprinkled holy water. No more accidents happened. An unseen magnetic strip along or under a road that causes accidents certainly is odd. Sweet dreams. This Day in History On this day, November 12th, in 1912, the body of British polar explorer Captain Robert Falcon Scott is found frozen to death in Antarctica. Scott headed two expeditions to the South Pole. The first took place in 1901 and lasted through to 1904. The second expedition was the Terra Nova Expedition that launched November 1st, 1911, and had a couple of goals. The first was to conduct more research, but the ultimate goal was to be the first to reach the South Pole. Norwegian explorer Ronald Admisson beat him to it by a month. Scott had a 38-man team that set off with him initially, but only five men were with him at the time of his death. That entire team died on the return trip. Inside Scott's tent were found fossils, rolls of film, meteorological logs, and scores of notes. The weather took a turn that they were not prepared for, and Captain Scott wrote, quote, No one in the world would have expected the temperatures and surfaces which we have encountered at this time of year. It is clear that these circumstances come on very suddenly, 
and our wreck is certainly due to the sudden advent of severe weather, end quote. West Florida is the southernmost part of the United States. The city features man-made beaches, resorts, shopping, eateries, and lots of history. One of the historical bars here is Captain Tony's Saloon. The building has a long and diverse history that includes brothels, speakeasies, morgues, and much more. One of the former bars here was a favorite watering hole of Ernest Hemingway. The current saloon, Captain Tony's, is a favorite gathering place for locals. It also seems to be a gathering place for customers from beyond the veil. Could it be because a former hanging tree once stood here? Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of Captain Tony's Saloon. Visitors to Key West, Florida will not find any non-man-made beaches because the island is made from coral. This coral was once below the sea as a type of coral forest millions of years ago. The first settlers to come here were Native Americans. Spanish explorers gave the island the name Cayo Hueso, which means Little Bone Island. Explorers used Key West as a pit stop for water and other items. Bahamians were thought to have settled here before the 1800s, but it wouldn't be until Florida became a territory in 1821 that settlers came here permanently. Ownership of Key West was really confusing at this time and almost came across as a land scam. Juan Pablo Salas bought Key West as part of a Spanish land grant in 1815 from Don Juan de Estrada. A man named John Simonton bought the land from Salas, but he didn't really have a deed. Little did Simonton know, but Salas sold it twice, once to him and once to a man named John Strong. Strong sold it twice as well, and Simonton partnered with three other men with whom he split the land. In the end, Congress declared Simonton the owner. So it was crazy back then. It's like, I'm going to sell it to you and sell it to you. And then this other guy does the same thing. And then he also splits it with three other people. <laughs> I know. It's all of a sudden you're like going, okay, I own the land. I don't own the land. I own it with somebody else. That would be very confusing. Eventually, it became American property. And the city of Key West was incorporated on January 8th, 1828. Key West also became a port of entry at that time. And since it was a port of entry, one of the things that they were able to do there was called wrecking which is taking shipwrecks to a port of entry. So they could take these shipwrecks that would happen right there on the coral because it's surrounded by all this coral and then bring the boats in and they could sell off all the goods. And it was almost kind of like a type of piracy, only it was like a land piracy almost. (laughs) And then they also had salt mining there too. And both of those were the major forces of the economy. Anyone visiting Key West will hear about something called the Conch Republic. The story behind this is one that many do not know, but there was a time when a part of Florida, Key West to be exact, seceded from the United States, and this was after the Civil War. In 1982, the Border Patrol set up a roadblock at Florida City's Skeeter's Last Chance Saloon to search for illegal immigrants. This effectively cut off the Florida Keys and inconvenienced residents and tourists. The Key West City Council complained to the federal government and pushed for an injunction against the roadblock. When they got no satisfaction, the council, along with the mayor of Key West, declared independence on April 23, 1982 and seceded. 
They lowered the American flag and raised the flag of the Conk Republic. Some Key Westers protested, and the American flag was raised above the Conk Republic flag. The media brought attention to the plight of the Keys, and the roadblock was dismantled. The American government never responded to the secession. Today, Key West continues to observe the event and celebrates their Conk Republic tongue-in-cheek, and this is spread to the entirety of the Keys. So that was something we noticed when we visited down there, that they had their own flag and they kept talking about this Conk Republic and we're like, what is this? So that is the story behind it. There actually was a part of America that seceded long after the Civil War, but the government uh, apparently didn't care. Yeah, well, and it's crazy. It's it's not that long ago because that's actually the year I graduated. There's only one road that goes into the Keys and if something happens to that road, it's hard to get in or out. Exactly. And so I think that was their way of saying, well, we're glad that you want to catch, I don't know if they were looking for Cubans coming across or Haitians, I'm not sure. They're like, that's fine, but you're making it so that we can't come and go either. But it's just one of those fun little pieces of Key West history. Captain Tony's Saloon is located at 428 Green Street, and this location has a rich and varied history. The building was built in 1851 to serve as an ice house. Ice was necessary to keep food cold in the 1800s, but it was also very useful for keeping something else preserved, and that was bodies. Before electric refrigeration, the ice house was used as Key West's first city morgue. There was a large oak tree beside the building that came to be known as Key West's hanging tree. Piracy was a huge problem in the waters around Key West, and 16 of those pirates would meet their end on this hanging tree. A 17th person hanged here was a woman who stabbed to death her family which included her husband and two small children. It's amazing because Key West is not that big. And so to have all of that happening, to have that many executions was a little bit crazy. I love how all of these cities that we talk about way back then had their hanging tree. It wasn't like they just walked up to any tree and threw a noose over it. They had that one specific tree that that's what they like to do there. I guess it made it convenient since it was right next to the morgue. Oh, Diane. <laughs> In the 1890s, the building became a wireless telegraph station, and some of the major news that came through there was about the sinking of the battleship Maine in 1898. The news went out from here to all over the world. A cigar factory moved into the space in 1912. A series of speakeasies moved in with various names, including the Blind Pig, and they featured the typical gambling, liquor, and brothels. Fun fact, Hoover Gold is what people in Key West called bootleg rum. The speakeasies continued into the 1930s when an establishment that will become well-known moved in, and that was Sloppy Joe's. Joe Josie Russell opened Sloppy Joe's in 1933. This was Ernest Hemingway's favorite watering hole in town. Hemingway had his most productive time of writing while he was living in Key West, and his daily routine was getting up at dawn, writing all morning and afternoon in his pool house, and then heading to Sloppy Joe's to meet his friends at 3.30 p.m. During these years, Hemingway wrote Death in the Afternoon, The Green Hills of Africa, To Have and Have Not, as well as The Short Happy Life of Francis Mockhomer. A dispute over rent between Josie and his landlord caused Josie to decide to move the bar across town to its current location on Duval Street. The landlord presented him with a new lease that raised the rent and stated that all fixtures had to stay at the bar if the lease was ended. So Josie decided to move the entire bar in the middle of the night, and he took the fixtures too. This included a urinal, which Hemingway insisted on taking because, quote, his hard-earned money paid for it. The urinal can still be viewed at the Hemingway house where it remains as a cat trough. 
which I could see where it would be a cat trough. There were cats everywhere, right around where Hemingway lived and stuff. Yep. The next person to own the building was an openly gay man named Morgan Bird. Although it was in the 1940s, Key West seemed more open about gay people, and perhaps that is why it is a gay haven to this day. Bird decided to open a gay bar here and called it the Duval Club. He decorated it in late Victorian style and threw lavish parties. Some of these parties attracted naval sailors, and before long, the Duval Club was on the off-limits list for the naval sailors who were apparently propositioned heavily at the bar. The well-worn location at 428 Green Street would have its final and current tenant take over in 1958. The owner at the time was David Wolkowski, and he sold it to Captain Tony Terracino, for whom Captain Tony's saloon is named. Anthony Terracino was an interesting character, and so he fit well with Quirky Key West. He was born in Elizabeth, New Jersey on August 10, 1916. His father was an immigrant and made money as a bootlegger during Prohibition. Tony decided to get into the family business, and he quit school in the ninth grade to sell illegal whiskey with his father. This eventually led him to the New Jersey Mafia. He became a gambler as well and got himself into a tight spot that left him beaten nearly to death at the Newark City dump. Tony decided he better change things and fast. He moved to Key West in 1948 and spent the next 60 years on the island, even serving as mayor for two years. He only had $18 in his pocket when he arrived. He worked as a charter boat captain for 35 years, which is where the title captain comes from. During the 1950s, he claimed he was a gunrunner and that he ferried CIA agents and mercenaries to Cuba and Haiti. He opened a saloon in 1958. He once said of Key West, Key West is an insane asylum. We're just too lazy to put up the walls or fences. I want to retain that mystique. He eventually sold the saloon in 1989 after running it for 28 years. He fathered 13 children with five wives. He died of lung and heart ailments at the age of 90 at Lower Keys Medical Center in Key West. This guy was a really interesting character. He's very scruffy looking, always had that kind of grisly face. He loved the ladies and would invite them to come sit on his lap and always wanted their kisses at the bar. But uh, he was just definitely a fixture there and they kept the name on the bar even after he sold it. Back room at Captain Tony's is a pool room, but it served as a dance hall named the Silver Slipper in the days of the original Sloppy Joes. A live band played rumba all night long. The room hosted gambling before the dance hall. There was sawdust on the floor and gamblers played faro, cello, craps, roulette, slots, and blackjack. Today, a huge tree grows in the center of the bar all the way through the roof. And yes, it is that tree, the hanging tree. The decor features license plates, business cards, and countless women's bras stapled to the walls and ceiling. The bar stools are painted and feature the names of famous people who have spent time there, like Truman Capote, Tennessee Williams, and Shel Silverstein. Jimmy Buffett performed at the tavern in the 1970s for tips and beer. The song, Last Mango in Paris, is about this time in Buffett's life. If you visit, be sure to try the Pirate Punch. And ladies, if you want to leave your brassiere on the wall, you are more than welcome to do that. They also have dollar bills stapled up everywhere and people have written different things on them. And when you think of dive bar, this is a dive bar. It's dingy, dirty, but it is a place that you just have to visit if you're ever in town and the locals absolutely love it. Now, when it comes to Key West, usually for most of us that are paranormal aficionados, the thing that comes to mind when you think of haunted stuff is, of course, Robert the Doll. Key West is his home. 
This creepy doll seems to have captured a spirit of some sort, but Robert is far from the only spirit on Key West, and Captain Tony seems to have a few spirits of its own. One of them, instead of Our Lady in White, we have A Lady in Blue. We've had a few of these in the past, Denise. Yes, we have. Remember the woman who they put on the hanging tree there for killing her family? Uh, Yep. Well, apparently she was wearing a blue dress when she was swung from the rope. And of course, the effects of hanging also caused her to turn blue because you're suffocated. So when people see her full-bodied apparition in the saloon, she is completely blue. One patron also claimed that he got a third-degree burn on his hand after touching the tree. Oh, wow. A major hurricane hit Key West in 1865 with a massive sea surge. The waves smashed into everything and the city morgue, the current saloon, took a direct hit. Doors went flying and so did corpses. They disappeared into the murky waters. Only one was ever recovered outside the building. The Bahamians decided to bury the body and then they built a wall around the grave and placed bottles of holy water in the wall. The bar was eventually built over this grave. In the 1980s, restoration was being done on the floors when the bones of 8 to 15 bodies were discovered. The bar features a skeletal reminder behind it. A grave marker featuring the name Elvira was found at this time as well, and it was put in the passageway to the pool hall. Was there a cemetery here at one time? Were the bones of those hanged buried here? Some people say that perhaps the corpses that went missing during the hurricane, that these are their bones. They really don't know. But the fact that there's a grave marker there makes me think that there was a cemetery here at some point. But nowhere did I see anywhere that it said that there was. Yeah. Not sure. It's a young lady who was about 19 years old. And I believe the marker says that she died in 1822. So it would have predated this building being there. That is very, very odd. Yeah. So I don't know if they built the ice house on top of a cemetery, possibly. Love her name, though, Elvira. That's one of my favorite horror TV personalities. I thought you were going to say it was your favorite Oak Ridge Boys song. (laughs) Yes, because I listen to them all the time, Denise. I know. It's it's a secret quirk she has, people, but it's okay. We still (laughs) love her. Honestly, when I first saw that the name was that, I did have Elvira going through my (laughs) head. So a woman came into the speakeasy one night with her baby and found her husband carousing. She was so angry that she went into the bathroom and killed the baby. Ever since, the bathroom has been haunted. Cold spots are felt in there and outside in the hallway. The stalls lock and unlock themselves. One woman had the following experience in 2005. I tried to go in the first stall, but it was locked. I figured someone was in there that I didn't notice. Then I heard the outside door close. Just before we left, I went in again. I again went for the first stall. The back one gave me the chills and eerie feeling, and I realized it was locked from the inside. While in the back stall, I again heard the outside door close, and I looked around the corner. No one had walked in. I was feeling strange, but continued what I was doing, and we don't want to know what that was, when all of a sudden, I heard that first stall door slam. I jumped out of the back stall and saw that no one was there and that the first stall was still locked from the inside. I ran out and never looked back. I mean, when you are in the bathroom and you're in your most vulnerable position, the last thing you want to do is have these doors slamming open and closed and nobody's there. Yeah, I wouldn't want to do it if I was just even in there putting on perfume or lipstick. Now, I can imagine it must be great fun for the employees of the bar to have to crawl underneath that stall and unlock the doors whenever they get locked like that. 
You know, you do have to wonder about a woman, though, that would get angry and kill her baby. Not the other woman, not her husband, but her baby. That's like a really bizarre reaction. And of course, who knows if it's even true. It could just be a legend that they have there. But wow, what a weird legend to make up. A man named Joe Faber started frequenting Captain Tony's saloon in 1976. He has heard disembodied voices. He said, about eight or nine years ago, I'm in the bar alone about four o'clock in the morning. I was sitting there doing paperwork and someone called me. All I heard was, hey, Joe. I thought it was pretty odd, so I got up to look around to see who was looking for me. I walked out of the back of the bar and the back doors were wide open. I'd just been out there maybe a half an hour earlier. He looked everywhere but found no one. He continued, I didn't think much of that voice until several years later. I was sitting at the bar at the end of the night doing paperwork and I heard that same voice again. But this time it says, don't leave. Now I've got the chills. I got up and I ran to the back to see if the doors were open. I checked and everything was locked down. So then I checked the entire building because I'm thinking this may be a warning that there's going to be a fire or something, but nothing was wrong. He finds nothing again and heads home. Several hours later, his phone rings. He said, I get a phone call about six o'clock in the morning from the police saying that a girl, maybe 17 or 18 years old, committed suicide in front of the bar. Apparently, the girl called her mother from her cell phone, said that she had taken some pills to kill herself, and that she was in front of a yellow building that she thought was a bar under a green awning. Her mother called the Key West police, who went from bar to bar and found the girl in front of Captain Tony's, dead. Had I stayed at the bar that night, maybe I would have found the girl and been able to help her. Now, do I know what the hell that is? Absolutely not. But I do know that I've been here 20 years. I've heard it twice, and it was meaningful both times. Everybody could speak about the lady in blue, the bathroom, and things like that, but it means nothing to me until I actively see it or hear it. But from what I've experienced and the stories I've heard, I know something's going on. Key West seems to have captured many spirits along its coral surface. Is the former Sloppy Joe's one of those places on the island harboring the spirits of those no longer living? Is Captain Tony's saloon haunted? That is for you to decide. Got some interesting stuff going on there. It does make you wonder if somebody who had passed away earlier is warning him about weird things going on there. Yeah, exactly, because both times it seemed like it corresponded with something that went on. It's a very interesting place. One of our favorite things to do there, and if you ever take a visit down there, is you need to go down to the Main Street Pier area, and everybody gathers down there to watch the sunset, and they have busker acts down on the pier, and just a lot of fun to hang out and, and wait for the sun to go down, and it's a gorgeous, gorgeous view, obviously. Also, Key West is a very party kind of town. So if you're a young person, you'll probably appreciate it a little bit more than we did. (laughs) Yes, although we do want to go back because we want to go out to the Dry Tortugas National Park. It's a really, really cool park from pictures, but you can only access it by boat. And if you go down there, of course, you have to get your picture at the southernmost point. And now we have the fifth installment of the third series of Tim Prassel's Spectral Edition, A New York Society of Ghost Hunters. Welcome to Spectral Edition. I'm Tim Prossel. As I go digging for these ghost reports in old newspapers, I sometimes come across articles that are related to ghosts, but not really about, say, haunted houses. Still, they do give us an idea of how people were thinking about ghosts in the late 1800s and early 1900s. And I've got an interesting one here. It was published on May 21st of 1904 in the New York Tribune. 
And now when I read through this and I say Jamaica, I mean the neighborhood in the borough of Queens in New York City, not the, the Caribbean island. The title of this article is Join to Rout Ghosts, Youths of Bedford District Form Society to Combat Fear. The ghosts within a radius of a hundred miles of New York might as well quit, and haunted houses still the restless spirits that moan at midnight. Out of Brooklyn has originated the society which is to put an end to belief in ghosts and haunted houses. Its name is almost enough to do the work. The Brooklyn Society for the Extermination of Ghosts and Dispelling of Haunted House Illusions. After having spent several nights in an old colonial house on Rockaway Road in the outskirts of Jamaica, the members of the society are about to give their attention to the house in Woodside, Long Island, in which Martin Thorne and Mrs. Knack killed Guidenseppe a few months ago. The only difficulty the society has encountered so far is the shortage of haunted houses. Letters have been written to real estate dealers in various towns in New Jersey, Westchester, and further up the Hudson, offering to rent all the haunted houses offered. The society has just got track on one in New Brunswick, which promises some exciting nights. The membership of the society includes 30 young men between the ages of 17 and 23 who live in the Bedford district of Brooklyn. None of them believe in ghosts, and they are willing to spend their time and money bringing other people to their way of thinking. If their theories should prove ill-founded and a ghost should really confront them, they are prepared to make immediate capture. Every mother's son of them has proved his bravery and courage by facing some terrible terror without flinching. On their ghost watches, they carry revolvers and wear dark lanterns. We have already put one haunted house out of business, said the president of the society, William Offerman of Jefferson Street, Brooklyn, yesterday afternoon to a Tribune reporter. The afternoon, it may be mentioned, is the only time one is sure of finding the ghost hunters, for their nights are otherwise occupied. It was an old colonial house in Jamaica, as spooky as you could find anywhere, continued the youth, who knows no fear. The story goes that a butcher took his life with a razor in one of the upper rooms. People will not live in the house because they said the butcher came back every night and cut his throat over again. We camped in the suicide room every night for a week, staying up until long after midnight, but there was never a sign of a ghost. The last few nights we tried out some fellas who wanted to join the society. A skeleton in the dark hall, rigged up on wires, with electric lights for eyes, was enough to demonstrate that one young man was not fit for membership. He ran all the way back to Jamaica before we could stop him. The other officers of the society are Arthur Pearson, vice president, Arthur Wagant, treasurer, Monroe Gallen, secretary. The treasurer, it is said, has plenty of funds to pay rent for the summer on all haunted houses that are offered. So, if you ever wondered what young men in New York in 1904 did with their spare time, well, at least a few of them hunted ghosts. I'm Tim Prossel, and you've been listening to Spectral Edition. I have close to 300 of these articles. I post one each Wednesday on my website, The Merry Ghost Hunter. I also have several previously released audio versions of Spectral Edition available there, too. The name, once again, The Merry Ghost Hunter. So, hey, stop on by sometime, huh?
Well, thanks so much for that, Tim. We invite you guys to check out our website, historyghostbump.com. And Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. We heard from a couple of our listeners that they've been visiting some of the haunted locations that we have featured. Emily got to go to the Whitney, and I believe that's the one that she suggested to us, too. So I don't think she'd ever been there, so that she got to go for the first time. Oh, that's super cool. Nothing creepy happened, but she shared some gorgeous pictures, especially of the Tiffany glass window. And Courtney visited the Whaley house. Oh, that's very cool as well. Yeah, so lots of fun. Thank you for sharing your pictures, ladies. Yes, Jennifer commented on the website, Hey ladies, I love the HGB podcast. It has become one of my favorite parts of my day. I love history and I'm also very interested in the paranormal. I recently listened to your Inferno podcast and was excited to hear you include Peshtigo in your content. I've been there several times and it's only over an hour from where I live. I've spent quite a bit of time in the cemetery and I'm also a taphophile, as are many of my sisters. I usually feel like somebody is following me at a close range when I'm there, and there's also a very heavy feeling. One interesting bit you did not cover was the Chicago businessman who lived in Peshtigo. That day, he lost not only his home and people in his family in Peshtigo, but also all of his businesses in Chicago. I'm sorry I do not remember his name. The museum itself is also quite unsettling, especially the basement. I would welcome you to Wisconsin anytime as there are many places that have paranormal activity. Keep up the good work. We also put up a haunted true crime bonus cast this last week and Kristen sent us an email in regards to that. Thanks for this awesome bonus true crime podcast. I grew up and now live about 30 minutes from Hawk Mountain. In high school, I went on a ghost hunt with Charlie Adams, a local ghost expert with my senior class. Can you imagine going on a ghost hunt with your senior class? I know, you know, I think about... I was telling people, yeah, well, we used, we went to a cemetery and a funeral home, and I thought that was really cool. We didn't get to go on a ghost hunt. I don't think we even got to do what you did, Diane, so we just like stayed at school. <laughs> we traveled to Hawk Mountain and visited many of the places described in the episode. When we were sitting in the Hawk Mountain Sanctuary, we saw the birds of prey on display circling on their own without the assistance of wind, air conditioning, in the building. We also went to Matthias Schombacher's tavern and his grave. Sadly, no green lights. There's a legend that if someone walked over his grave, they would experience bad luck. One of our football players tried it for fun. They were undefeated at the time, but did not win a game the rest of the season. Coincidence? Maybe, maybe not. You know what I say about coincidences, Denise? They don't happen, but and we all know what I say about tempting the spirits. Uh, apparently, that was not a good idea. Also, we would attempt to go to visit the area at night several times after the tour with Mr. Adams, but every time we were stopped by something, a downed tree in the road, icy roads, etc. I've not visited since then, but this episode brought back many memories. Well, we're glad that we brought you some great memories there. Our next episode will feature Ledge Lighthouse and the Lighthouse Inn, and this was suggested to us by Brian Morse. And we have a few reviews from iTunes to share. We have Jen0458. Not the typical paranormal podcast, five stars. I have little patience for ghost hunter type programs and podcasts. Diane and Denise don't take themselves as seriously as they do their history. The emphasis here is on history and facts. Diane will express skepticism and Denise is not interested in meeting the spirits. Their banter feels authentic. Clearly, they've been together for a while. The show sometimes sounds scripted. I suspect they craft their presentations rather than speak from memory. If NPR-type diction bothers you, go away. They interview folks from all over, so sound quality is not always consistent. Overall, their style is chatty, but shows a lot of enthusiasm for their subjects. 
They also seem to interact often with their listeners. They mention messages left by listeners, and they always do shout-outs to their financial supporters. My only complaint is the sound clip of the lady with the Cockney accent. I'm often listening with headphones, and that clip seems much louder than the rest of the feed. Great job, ladies. You have another regular listener. Well, thank you, Jen. And I pulled down the audio a little bit on our bumper that you're talking about there. So hopefully that is a little easier on your ears. Chance's mom, 11703, five stars. Absolutely amazing. I love everything about this podcast. I just started listening, so I have a lot of catching up to do, but I can't wait. I love everything historic and everything spooky, so how could this not be my thing? I love the podcast. I and Denise already feel like friends, and I love the spectacular crew. It's a great thing to have a community of people who think like you, even when your thoughts are a little strange. Thanks for making the mundane in my life a little more tolerable. I don't even mind cleaning my house now. Okay, not much. Thanks, ladies. Keep them coming. And that's from uh, Jen. Thanks so much, Jen, for sharing that with us. And uh, I tell you what, podcasts get me through cleaning for sure, because that's what I do every day. So, And finally, Zombie Zeitgeist. Oh my God, that would be horrible. Four stars. History and the Paranormal is a great marriage. I like the music in both host voices. Enjoy the content, though interviews would allow this podcast to make the leap from good to great. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producer, Lynn Skye. Thanks. Fan of the show? Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast catcher. We would greatly appreciate your review at iTunes as well to help the show grow. Thank you.